Ladies and gentlemen, we're in go mode, as usual. <laughs> Combination, what up? What up? What up, everyone? Welcome to episode 264 of Combos Court, and I am Combo. Don't forget to rate, review, and punch down on that subscribe button. If you enjoy this podcast, if you would like to support this podcast, check out the Combos Court Patreon page. I'll leave a link in the description for that. There's two tiers, and on one of those tiers, you could get exclusive Patreon-only Combos Court episodes, at least one per month. Check it out if you would like to support. Another way to support is share this episode, man. Share it with a friend. Share it on social media. Today's show, Daniel Poneman, NBA agent, co-founder of Beyond Athlete Management, joins in. We talk overseas basketball, the future of college basketball. Daniel actually started in media. We talk about that as well. A fantastic conversation with Daniel. You can find Daniel on Twitter at Daniel Poneman. That's D-A-N-I-E-L-P-O-N-E-M-A-N. You know you can find me on Instagram at 1-2-Combo. That's O-N-E. T-W-O-C-O-M-B-O, intro music by Luca Beats. Let's get into it. Daniel Poneman, co-founder of Beyond Athlete Management. Daniel is an NBA agent. He's also a producer of Emmy-nominated documentary, Shot in the Dark. Welcome to Combo's Court, man. How you feeling? Feeling good. Happy to be here. Yeah, good bit to have a Bit of a gloomy day here in Chicago, but hopefully this uh, conversation will pick up our moods. Yeah, most definitely. I think it will. It's been pretty nice here in New York. Uh, look, man, you started really early in media really early. So what was your thought process when you started up Facebook, YouTube? I mean, you were way ahead of your time. Yeah. Like when I started uh, covering high school basketball, social media was really like a new thing. Like I used to use AOL instant messenger to find players and interview them. I don't know for the old heads, if you used to use aim um, by screening grooviness 14. Um, <laughs> I was, I think I was NBA 114 or one of those numbers. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think like my middle school girlfriend like picked out my screen name. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I used to use AIM and then I would use, when well, I remember Facebook dropped my freshman year of high school. I remember uh, I was in a computer lab and someone showed me this new thing called Facebook um, where you could friend request people, but you had to be invited and you had to have a school email address. So then right. I was able to use Facebook to start reaching out and getting interviews with players. But at the time I was still calling people's home phones. Like it's still, we didn't have smartphones in our pockets. It was like 04, 05, 06. So I used to call people's home phone for interviews. I was in high school running my high school basketball website, but um, now I think it's much more commonplace. I think the internet's an intuitive place uh, for young people to operate where when I was 14 years old, starting a high school basketball blog, it was like a new thing. It was like, why is this kid, you know, trying to report. But now I think with the internet has opened up the possibilities for young people. And you see people in middle school, people in high school, they all feel like they can use the internet to, you know, write about what they want or, or, or become YouTubers or become bloggers. And I think it's almost like the new generation is coming up where it's like they don't have those mental boundaries that I almost had to break through in order to, to start my career. 
Yeah, it's interesting because whenever you're early on a platform or on a wave, it's always really beneficial. So, I mean, I'm sure it really helped out you starting so early before the wave, you know, and then you could go with the wave as it goes up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, throughout my high school years, again, I started covering high school basketball when I was 14 and Facebook had just dropped. I was 05. And then throughout my high school years, different social medias just started, platforms started dropping. So like I was like right. sophomore, junior, YouTube came out. And I remember like, I would, you know, used to transcribe interviews on uh, notepad and then I would type them up and then I'd write the article then I'd upload it to the website. And then it hit me one year. I was actually at the Nike Peach Jam. And this is a year it was like Greg Monroe, Willie Warren, DeMarcus Cousins, like Harrison Barnes, I think, Jared Sullins, like a lot of good players at the Peach Jam. And I had too many players to interview and too many, uh, too many articles to write. And then I was like, wait, if I just record it and upload it to that new YouTube thing, I don't have to take the time to transcribe interviews and write articles. It could just be up today and I could do all these interviews in one day. So I set up a little room at the Peach Jam and just started interviewing everybody. Josh Smith, Jared Sullinger, Harrison Barnes, Greg Monroe, going down the list and then up, started uploading them the next day. And that was it. It was like, wow, I was the first person on YouTube doing high school basketball interviews. Then I remember my senior year, Twitter became a thing and trying to convince people to go on this new Twitter thing that was limited to 140 characters. But it was really right. cool, like, I think, for me that I got to like, like, you know, someone like you as well, like our generation, we got to straddle like where we know what it was like pre-social media and then ride the wave of social media. We got to exist in both uh, eras. I mean, you're an agent now. Was that ever in your thought process when you were growing up or you always thought you'd be on the media side? I never wanted to be an agent. Like it was something people always told me I was, would have been good at, but it was yeah. something I never wanted to do. Like I had like a bad, uh, a negative image of what an agent was. Like to me, I was helping people. I was writing about players, giving them exposure, uh, giving them a platform, helping them with recruitment. And I saw agents as like, oh, they're just trying to make a profit. They're money hungry. They're you know, they're the, the slick, the slick dude, you know, whatever. Well, trying to make a profit isn't always a bad thing, but they definitely have that, you know, stigma about them for sure. Right. I, mean, I was young and young and idealistic, right? Yeah, and right. I older, I got to see, okay, well, you can be an agent and help people. You don't have to be that negative stereotype. Yeah. You, can, you can help. And now I've seen being an agent, like there's no greater joy for me than helping sign a player out of college and helping them build a career, get to the NBA, create generational wealth. Like, and every job, there's good people and bad people. And I think when I was younger, I was just very hesitant to go that path. And almost it was like, that was the one thing I always said I wouldn't do. And it's the one thing I'd end up doing. And I almost think I always knew in the back of my head, it was what I was going to end up doing. That, that makes sense. It's kind of like the law of attraction. Would you say I'm not going to be something, but you mentioned that thing and you become yeah. it, you know, you're still putting that thing into the air. It's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. It's the one thing I always said I wouldn't do. And it's the one thing I <laughs> What, what went into your decision not going to college? And, you know, did your parents say anything about it? Were they in full support of it? I mean, looking back, it looked like it was a good thing for you, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I'd like to think it was a good thing. Um, yeah. So to give context to anyone listening, like I was in high school running a successful high school basketball site. I had colleges subscribed to my scouting service. So I didn't, like, I have kids reaching out to me all the time being like, oh, I, I want to, I don't want to go to college just like you. Like I want to, you know, just follow my passion. But it's like, I wouldn't recommend that route to, everybody. I'd recommend that route to very few people. For me, I already had a successful business where I was able to forego college because I had, I already had some momentum going. Had, had I not had that, I definitely would have gone to school. But for me, it was, it was like, I was so busy with my business, writing articles, doing interviews, doing scouting reports for schools, going to AAU tournaments that almost like my high school career, like high school became like a nuisance. Like I was sleeping through class and 
staying up all night writing scouting reports. So then when it came time to do my college applications, it kind of occurred to me like, wow, I'm signing up for four more years of spending the majority of my days not focused on the thing that's really, you know, taking me where I need to go. So I was, I was filling out my application to go to Northwestern where I kind of already had it lined up with a coaching staff in the school. I was going to go be a team manager. They already kind of had me set up. I go in my parents' room and I was like, Hey guys, like I, I just decided I'm not going to college and they were supportive. They were shocked, but they were supportive because again, they saw, okay, I've got some momentum in my business. Yeah. I, you know, if, and if I take a year off and I, I fall on my face, Northwestern will still be there. I can still go back to school. It's not like your GPA and your ACT disappear when you take a year off, but I took that year off and never looked back. That's interesting. So let's shift to today. I mean, you're an NBA agent. Do you have players abroad as well? Do you have players in the G league as well? Or how does, yeah. yeah. So when, you know, I always found this interesting and I like to hear your take on it with players. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people reaching out to you wanting you to be their agent. But I think the thing that gets lost a lot of times is that, especially when we're talking about abroad, you might even think a player is good enough to play abroad. But if you didn't play at the right place, if you don't have the right stats, it's really not going to happen. Are teams abroad really evaluating talent or are they just looking at where a player played, their stats, and bringing them over? And obviously they're looking at tape, but is that the most important thing? I'm really happy you asked this question. And obviously, you know, with your background, having played, you know the answer to this uh, better than anybody, right? Like how many right. countries did you play in? I played in two. Yeah. Played in two. So you, you know exactly how this goes. So a lot of times guys will hit me up and be like, hey, I want to go, I want to go pro. I need an agent. Um, I look at their stats and they aren't great. And they played at a small college or they, you know, whatever, their numbers aren't great. And I try to explain to them, it doesn't matter if you can hoop. It doesn't matter if, oh, I didn't play because my coach didn't like me or, well, the offense wasn't for me or, you know, what, oh, but I'm really better than, no. Like when you're looking at going overseas, there are so many thousands of players that want to play overseas. And if I'm a GM of a team in Italy and I have one opening for a power forward for $5,000 a month, there's 2,000 people who want that job. Well, how am I going to filter who I even, then you can't watch film on 2,000 guys. First thing you look at his numbers. All right, what level did he play at? What were his, what, what did he average? What was, uh, how efficient was he? What were his percentages? All right, so that narrows it down to maybe 10 or 15 candidates. And that's when you actually watch the film. So ultimately, like I, as an agent, if there's a guy who averaged three points per game at, you know, Cal Poly, and I think he's the greatest player I've ever seen, I could try as hard as I want. No overseas teams are going to look at that guy. They're going to look at the numbers, look at the level and write him off. So ultimately, like, that's why it's so important for players in picking a college, picking a right, the right level, the right system and place where, like, I hate to be, like, when I give players advice to be like, um, it sounds cutthroat, be like, hey, you have to put up these numbers because ultimately you want players to be team first. You want them to be, you know, win, play for their coach. You want to be selfish. But ultimately, if you're not putting up a certain level of of stats, you're not going to get a look overseas. Um, It's, people think like, oh, if I don't make the NBA, I'll just like, I'll go overseas. Like, but that's, wow. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. There's, there's like, like it's like the men's league or like the rec league or something. There, right. you know, <laughs> there's 450 jobs in the NBA plus 60 players with two way contracts. Then another 450 or so in the G league, 
and then maybe 500 or so jobs overseas where you're making really good money. And then maybe another 500 where you're making an, a living. And then the rest of that is, is like, yeah, it's like you can go to you know, Slovakia and make $400 a month and get a free meal every day, but that's not really, really pro basketball. Right, that's right, right. Bring off the inevitable. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think guys really underestimate how difficult it is to go pro overseas from any level um, and, and, and realizing that agents don't have a magic wand. I can't just call a, a, a GM in, in France and be like, oh, trust me, he's way better than his numbers. Like, no, they, they want to win. They don't want to lose their job. They want to make sure they're bringing a proven commodity. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's basically just like filtering it out. Like, you're not even going to get a look if you didn't play at a certain school with a certain level. And the lower level you play, the more outrageous your stats have to be. So I under, kind of understand why the transfer pool is, is the transfer portal is crazy because players are thinking about this now. Yeah. And it's a sliding scale where it's like, if you played at Duke and you average six points a game, you'll probably get a job somewhere. If you played at uh, university of Illinois and you average 11 a game, you'll probably yeah. get a job somewhere. Well, if you played at Southern Illinois, you probably need 16 a game. Well, you know, and it's like a sliding scale. Whereas players out of D2, but every player I sign out of D2 is either national player. All Americans. Yeah. All American. Yeah. And that's but the, it's, uh, but that is interesting because some of those D2 guys or mid-major guys do really well overseas because they carry a heavy load when they're in college. Sometimes those high major guys that only average 10, but get a look because they were at a great school don't do as well as like some of those lower level college players, even though they're high level players. Yeah. That's an underrated point. And again, like that's something that like only someone who's played overseas and knows the business can like tap into, but it's like, when you're going to those entry level jobs, they usually only have two or three Americans on the team, sometimes only one. So you need to carry a super heavy load. So yeah, if a guy's coming from Wisconsin, we average 11, but he was a catch and shoot guy and wasn't used to creating his own, his, his own opportunities on offense, you might go to overseas, go overseas and struggle. Whereas if you're coming from a D2 where you put up 25 in every, it was ISO every play, you're going to do great at one of these small leagues overseas because they need you to get a bucket. Like we have, I, I, our agent represents a player named Gage Davis, played at St. Cloud State um, in, uh, in, in Minnesota. He was a D2 All-American. He's in Holland this year dominating because he's used to carrying a heavy load. Um, whereas I've seen guys who played at really high levels who just can't make that adjustment to being, from being role player to the guy. Whereas when you get to the EuroLeague level, the highest levels, all right, now they're playing nine-man, 10-man rotations. Guys are getting 15, 20 minutes, and like you can get back to being a role player. But at those, those lower levels, you've got to be able to get a bucket. Yeah, it's interesting. Like even watching Mike James in the NBA, and people are surprised. I don't, I don't think people realize how tough averaging close to 20 points in EuroLeague is. Like, you know, the leading scorer is around 20. So to see him do what he's doing is not really a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. Yeah, no, no one puts up that, those types of numbers in EuroLeague for sure. Yeah, I would say that averaging 25 in EuroLeague is, is harder than averaging 25 in the league. Yeah, no, no one does that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so, you know, we're talking about overseas, and overseas, you know, abroad, when you're a great player at the age of 16, 17, 18, you're a pro already. We know that it's not really connected to, to school. What are your thoughts on the alternative path, uh, on all the alternative paths that we're seeing? We have Overtime Elite. We obviously have G League Ignite. Is this great for the game? Do you not feel it is? Like, what are your thoughts on all of that? Um, having options is always having options is always going to be great for the game. Agreed. Ultimately, every path is different. Every person has a different path. Every person uh, has different needs for their own career. Like, I saw a tweet yesterday where, like, I think like Jalen Green was like 
if I had gone to college, I'd be the number one pick. But I did G League, and I like he I, might he might be right. He might be right, but you know what? Every path, every person has a different path and different needs. For some guy, the the Australian Next Stars. I love Australia. I love the NBL. The Next Stars program is perfect. For other guys, this overtime elite league might be good. I'm you know I'm I'm cautiously optimistic because other people have tried and failed at similar things. But if anyone can do it, it's going to be overtime where they already have their own distribution channels. And yeah. For people backing them. So I'm optimistic. There's going to be some kinks to work out. There's going to be some kids that take that money and don't end up panning out um, and then can't play college basketball. So that's a huge risk for, for some. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I mean, there's 30 guys. So a lot of those guys aren't even going to go first round. Some of them aren't even going to go second round. So where do you go after that? That's really interesting because it, it can't be 30 top five picks, you know? So yeah. And, that, and that's another thing. Like, I think, where people underestimate the difficulty of playing overseas or they think, Oh, well, if you don't get drafted, you'll just go overseas. Well, that was one of the major miscalculations of the bar, the bar balls uh, league, yeah. but they were like, Oh, well, if these kids don't, you know, make, make it uh, in, in the, the NBA, they'll just go overseas. Overseas does not want some 19 year old kid who didn't play college basketball, who was ranked, but played one year semi pro like those teams don't want to touch that. They want professionals who can contribute to winning right away college teams will take projects and develop them overseas teams is a one-year deal. They want something to contribute right away. So that is the concern with the overtime league where top few guys, it might work out perfectly. Bottom few guys, you can't play in college. Now um, overseas don't want you. You're not going to draft what happens, but hopefully with the changing amateurism laws with NIL, we're getting to a place where those guys actually will be able to still play in college after having played an overtime league. I think that's the end game. At first, there's going to be one or the other, but I think we'll get to a point where you can do overtime in high school, NCAA, and get paid, and then and then go pro. Where do you think the future of NC2A basketball is heading with all these alternative paths? Um, I think it's going to have to evolve and adapt to the point where players are getting paid, whether it's through NIL, you know, whether it's you know, players getting paid directly from the schools or the NCAA. Like it, it has to get to a point, like. NCAA basketball is not going to NCAA sports aren't going anywhere. Those brands are so powerful and there's so many loyal followers. Like there's a big difference uh, even between pro sports fandom and college sports fandom, pro sports fandom. It's like, yeah, you grew up loving a team. There are some diehard fans, but I've never seen more diehard fans in college sports because your identity is oftentimes tied up in that school. It's, it's, I went to that school. So if these kids beat those other kids, that shows that I'm superior to the people that went to that school. People's identities are tied up in these brands. And as long as American colleges exist, college sports will be, will be powerful. They're just going to need to adapt with the times and, and start paying players, you know, and it'll be little by little. First, it'll be the NIL stuff. And then it'll be loosening of the amateur you know, amateurism restrictions and then ultimately the, the players in the, in, the, in the money sports will get paid yeah there's a yeah there's a lot to unpack there um also there's just so many kids that these alternative paths can't handle i mean you got how many kids playing nc2a basketball so you just you know yeah. and, and, right in and, and the alternative paths the overtime elite and the g like those only cater to the, the five-star kids if you look in the NBA, well, to, well, for thirty overseas, for thirty overtime elite kids, they're not all going to be five star, right? Well, some will be four stars, right? Okay, so okay, five and four stars, right, right, right okay. Top eighty kids or yeah. top hundred, ideally, right? Right. And if you're not a top one hundred kid, and you're giving up your college eligibility, it's not a good idea because yeah. the odds right. get lower past that five star, get lower and lower. But you look at the NBA; would Dame Lillard have been invited 
to the overtime elite league. No, he went to Weber State with Steph Curry, John Morant, uh, right? Rant, Paul George. I mean, the list goes on and on. So right. there's always going to be a need for college basketball because there's always going to be those kids who, you know, come out of nowhere and, you know. Yeah. And also, you know, you know, picking an alternative path program, you're right about the fan bases. I mean, if you're going to the G League, you might be playing in the middle of nowhere in front of like, I don't know, maybe 900 fans. And then if you pick Kentucky or something like that, it's going to be a little bit different of a look for you. It's going to be a little bit different of an experience. You're going to get the college experience and all that. Yeah, to think that that uh, the overtime league or the G League can just replace college sports, because it would would be to operate with the assumption or, or, or the you know the thesis that uh, it's all about entertainment value and the quality of the players, but it completely ignores the fact that it's probably the primary reason for college sports fandom is not about the entertainment value or the quality or level of the players of the play. It's about loyalty to the schools and the brands, and that that goes to where did you go to school you know, what frat were you in? What geographic region did you grow up in? Those are things that you're not going to just shift that fandom to um, the overtime league. There's some, you know, uh, segment of high school sports diehards or recruiting diehards that are going to like the overtime league. There's definitely a market for that, as we've seen with overtime as a channel getting so much traction, so many views. But there's also, you know, I grew up an Iowa fan, um, and I didn't care who was putting on those jerseys. I just knew that I loved the Hawkeyes when, since the time I was a little kid until, until high school. So there's, that's always going to be there no matter who's putting on the jerseys. Luca Garza going first round or second round? I'm an agent, so I can't comment. Oh, man. <laughs> the first no comment of the conversation. I like it. All right. So tell me more about your movie. Um, 2017, it came out, right? It was a 17 or 18. It was one of those. Okay. Yeah. Tell me more about it. Shot in the Dark. Yeah, so uh, it was my first foray into filmmaking. Uh, me and uh, two uh, filmmakers, uh, Dustin, Nikau, Heather, and Ben Vogel, along with our producer, uh, Daniel Dews, uh, we, we started a passion project. Um, it was just kind of like filmmakers that wanted to tell a story about Chicago basketball and do it in a true, honest, authentic way. Um, so I picked a school on the West Side, or Academy, a uh, star player named Taekwon Greer, um, who was a really bright kid, talented player, but had a lot of life obstacles to get through to, to reach his goals. And we decided to turn on the cameras and start filming. What we thought was going to be a couple weeks ended up being three years of filming at the school and then two more years of filming in college. We followed this team and these kids really through from adolescence to adulthood. And then, you know, it was really a passion project that we were first time filmmakers. I was 20 years old when we started filming. Um, and we didn't know what we were doing, but we just really wanted to tell an honest, authentic story with our subjects. Um, and then down the stretch, we started getting some interest in our film and we teamed up with a group called Los Angeles Media Fund uh, to bring it to big screen. Um, ended up uh, selling the film to Fox, having a national TV premiere, got nominated for an Emmy for best sports doc. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a seven year process from our first day of filming till, uh, till premiere, but it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life because I'm from Chicago, born and raised. I love this city. I love our basketball culture. And it was kind of my opportunity to uh, use my platform to tell the true story about um, what these kids go through and what life is like in Chicago and what it's like being a hooper in Chicago and doing it in a non-sensationalized, honest, authentic way. Common theme for you, turning passion projects into business. That's what it's all about. <laughs> All right, last thing before we get out of here, um, your business, how has it changed in the last 20 years and how will it look 10, 20 years from now? Um, 
Well, I can't say how the agent business has really changed in the last 20 years because I haven't been 20 years ago. I was nine. So I wasn't. (laughs) True. You know, I think the role of agent has changed in a lot of ways, whereas like maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was all about, you know, being in an office with your suit on, you know, getting a contract and, uh, you know, getting the player paid. And like that was the extent of the of the agent's role. But now uh, the modern agent with, with social media and the different channels of distribution and how big sports are getting and the different ways you can make money, the role of an agent and agency has changed completely. Um, you know, now we're, we're not only helping them get paid on the court and, or on the field, but it's also you know, how do you build your social media following and, 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 and uh, get, get money that, to, through those channels? How do you, you know, build a nonprofit to get back to your community? How do we get involved in the entertainment business? There's all the a myriad of different avenues. You know, athletes are such massive global brands now. There's a myriad of different ways for them to get involved. And it's an agent and an agency's job to give 360 coverage to all of those opportunities and make sure that guys really capitalize on the opportunities while they're while they're active players and while their brands are hot before they they retire and you know fade to black. Where's it going? The business. Um, well, I'm very excited for the NIL, NIL stuff and the amateurism laws to change because it just opens up to, uh, you know, doubles the pool of, of, of athletes to represent in America. I, I can see, you know, a lot more localized endorsement deals where, you know, maybe, nice. um, you know, previously, you know, uh, people think with NIL, it's just going to be the guys that do from Kentucky making money. No, nah, like there's, you know, North Dakota has a strong fan base. Well, the star player at North Dakota can make really good money uh, doing car, you know, doing appearances at the local car dealership or the local restaurant. You know, you talk about someone like Garza, you know, who knows what his NBA future holds, but his earning potential over the last four years in Iowa City or three years in Iowa City has been immense. We're going to see a lot of guys making a lot of money, and that's very exciting for someone in our position where it just opens up the possibilities of guys we can work with. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can we find you on social media? Where can we find more about your companies? Uh, I'm at Daniel Poneman. Uh, P-O-N-E-M-A-N on all social media platforms. My company's Beyond Athlete Management. We're beyond.am or beyond underscore am on all social media platforms. So find us there. Um, I appreciate you having me. This was a lot of fun. I feel like we could have talked for another two hours, but I appreciate the uh, the brevity and you get straight to the point and I'm happy to come back. <laughs> Most definitely would be great to have you back on. Appreciate you taking the time and talk soon. Hey, that conversation was a lot of fun. Thanks to Daniel for joining in. We appreciate you. Combo Nation, don't forget to rate, review, and punch down on that subscribe button. Appreciate everyone who listens to Combo's Court across the globe. If you would like to support this podcast, if you enjoy this podcast, check out the Combo's Court Patreon page and join in as a Combo's Court patron. We have two tiers, and there's a tier where you could get exclusive Patreon-only Combos Court episodes, at least one per month. So check out the Patreon page. I'll leave a link in the description for that. Another way to support is share this episode, man. Share this episode on social media. Share it with a friend. Tell a friend to tell a friend about Combos Court Podcast. Be on the lookout for episode 265. Combo out.